This morning, we are diving back in to Jesus asking us to think again about what it means to live as his followers in this world. And specifically, Jesus is challenging us in certain areas of our lives to think differently, to think not the way our society thinks, not even maybe the way our parents taught us to think, but to think the way God thinks, to see from his perspective to learn how to surrender our thoughts and attitudes and feelings and actions to the lordship of Jesus, to say, God, you be in control in this area. Today, we will be looking at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. If you have a Bible, pull it out. Matthew 5, 27, if you're using one on the pew rack in front of you, page 786. And here's my promise to you this morning. You are not going to be bored today. Because Jesus really rarely ever preached yawners, but today he is all over it. This morning you are going to be riveted because today he will speak right into the heart of one of our great human struggles. Today he's going to speak right to you and me and talk to us about an area that all of us wrestle with. Today Jesus is going to talk and have us think again about marriage, lust, sex, and sin. That's the title of the sermon today. Marriage, lust, sex, and sin. And if you're a guest, you're thinking, of course, I picked today to come. We're glad you're here. These are all, by the way, uh, red letter words in your Bible, which means they're words that came right off Jesus' lips. These are words right from him. Here's what he says. You have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, I want to start off by just offering some possible responses to this passage. Many of you have heard it before and you're thinking again about it. Some of you are going to be forced to think again in a fresh way today. But maybe you're here and you're tempted to think, isn't this fairly extreme and even harsh, Jesus? I mean, can't we take it down a notch, lust thrown into hell, gouging out of eyes, body parts removed? It all seems a bit extreme. Or maybe you're here and you're thinking, I knew it. Christians are so sexually repressive and this just proves it. Now we can't even enjoy the beauty and attractiveness of another person without being made to feel guilty. Church, they have that guilt and shame thing down. Or or maybe you're here and you're thinking completely differently. Maybe you're thinking, good, Good, I'm glad we're finally teaching this stuff because I know someone who's a luster. Maybe it's someone close to you. Maybe it's a spouse and you're thinking, you get them, Pastor Dave. You tell them. You blast them with the truth this morning. I have a friend who really needed to hear that message. I'm going to send them the podcast if I only had a dollar for the number of times. Or, Or perhaps... You're on the other side of that coin, and all you can think as I read those words is, man, how I've tried. How I have tried to resist, how I have 
tried to control my eyes, how I have tried to control my mind, how I've tried to be pure, but it's just so hard in this world that we live in. And, and if I'm really honest, I'm just tempted to check out because this passage and others like it dig up for me a fair amount of guilt and shame. And what I really want to do is just give up. Friends, let me ask all of us this morning to just decide right now to be open to what the Holy Spirit through the scriptures may want to say to us today. Because maybe God wants to say something to you that you haven't been saying to yourself. Maybe that little narrative that runs through your mind and that's been running through your mind for maybe years, maybe he wants to change it. Maybe he wants to speak into it. Maybe he wants to say something different. And so let's just together decide to take a posture of God, I'll hear from you. Whatever you need to say to me, I want to hear from you for me. And with that, I'll pray if you'll join me. Father, this morning, as we open your word and listen to words, Lord, that came right off your lips, we ask that you would use them to teach us and redirect us and correct us and help us and train us to be people who live rightly, who live fully into the life that you long for us. And so... God, we choose to open our minds and hearts today for you to work. Say what you need to say. Begin to do what you need to do. Have your way with us, God. That's our prayer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. All right, first of all, I want to point out that Jesus starts this passage in familiar territory. He, he talks to his audience about something they would have all known and, and agreed with, and that's this statement, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard this said, you shall not commit adultery. And everyone's going, yes, of course, straight out of the Ten Commandments, commandment number, good job, seven. I, I, I wouldn't have got that one either. You'd, if that was you, I would have just whiffed it. So um, commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. And uh, what Jesus will do here is what he does so often in his teaching is he will try to move us from knowing a law and following rules to understanding God's heart for us. He says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, unless you go beyond just knowing rules and following laws, unless your righteousness goes deeper and farther and is more significant, then you'll never experience the kingdom. You'll never experience the life I long for you to have. That's his goal here. He wants to go beyond rules. And he'll say, so let's think again here about adultery. And I'll just let you know that I did some premarital counseling for a young couple getting married just this week, so my marriage theology is very fresh. Um, and here's where it starts. God forbids adultery, not just because he's old-fashioned about sex. No, God's intention, his purpose and aim and goal and heart in this law, in this commandment in the Old Testament is to protect the intimacy, connection, and unity of marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, he says, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And he's not just talking about sex here. 
He's talking about two people experiencing intimacy and unity in a sacred and remarkable way. He's talking about two people becoming one, experiencing oneness. What is the goal of marriage? Too many married people don't understand the goal of marriage. They get married and they don't even know why. Here's the goal of marriage according to the scriptures. Oneness. That you might be so intimately and deeply connected to another person in a way that you never have been with anyone else before. That you might just get a glimpse of what God experiences in the Trinity. And sex is a gift, one of the gifts that God gives to humanity to help in the creating of that oneness experience. And so adultery, friends, is bad, not just because God is a prude who made a rule, but because it takes the physical tool of oneness creating sex meant for marriage, and it dilutes it, and it damages it, and it dismantles it. And so Jesus says, if you really understand the goal of marriage, if you really understand how significant and powerful and special and holy and sacred marriage is, then... You won't just simply try to avoid adultery. You will do everything in your power to protect and preserve and foster God's gift of physical intimacy. It goes far beyond a rule. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And all the women are thinking, whew, I'm glad I'm off the hook on this one because he's obviously talking to the guys. Well, I think we are smarter than that. (laughs) I want to be really clear here. Um, Jesus is not saying this because people use this passage really poorly all too often. Uh, Jesus is not saying if you've done adultery in your heart, if you've lusted after another person, well, then you might as well and go all the way and do it physically because to do it in your mind or in your heart is just as bad as doing it for real. Jesus says so, and so I've already blown it. Now I might as well just go for it. Uh, Jesus is not saying one is just as bad as the other. He's not saying that lust and adultery are the same thing. Actually, adultery, physical adultery, includes everything that's wrong with the lusting of the heart plus more. They're in the same category. They're in the same genre. But, but physical adultery takes lust and adds deceit and adds betrayal, and adds the breaking of a promise, and adds more damage to a family, and deeper hurt to a spouse. Friends, just ask anybody who's been through this. Is adultery the same as lust? Is it? No, it's not, not Jesus' point here, right? Well, I cheated on you, but you lusted after that guy a few weeks back, and so we're even. Is that how it works, married people? No. What's happening here is that Jesus is speaking to some super religious men who were tempted to think that just because they had avoided certain sexual sins, they were superior to other people. They're breaking people into two categories, the righteous, those who hadn't committed adultery, and the unrighteous, those who had. And so right at the beginning, one thing Jesus is attempting to do is just level the playing field. This is so good for us church folks. He wants us to understand beyond the shadow of a doubt that when we talk about sexual brokenness and sin in this world, 
This is a place where we all struggle in one way or another. This is a place where we all have some work to do. He says, you want to point out people who do certain things, but God wants something so much more for you than just religious rules that help you feel morally superior. What Jesus is saying is, let's get beyond rules and get to your heart. Let's go to the core of how you think and feel and approach sexuality. Let's get way past just avoiding certain sins and behaviors and talk about heart-level transformation. And Jesus says, this is a serious thing. This is no small subject. Twice in this passage, he mentions the H word. H-E double hockey sticks, as we used to call it when I was in elementary. And this brings up the obvious question, again, is Jesus saying, because it can be read this way, is Jesus saying that if you lust, you are going to hell? Well, the word Jesus uses for hell here is actually the Greek word geena, geena, and, and geena was a, a real place. Geena was the darb, was the garbage, the garbage dump. That was the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. It was the place where people sent all their refuse. It was the place where where filth and dead animals were discarded, where things that were rotting and decaying were burned. In other words, it was an awful, ranky, horrible place. Gehenna, and, and because of this, Gehenna became an image, kind of this picture for what life apart from God would be like. If you had to spend life and eternity apart from God, it would be like living in Gehenna. It's like living in the garbage dump. It's more rotten and smelly and dirty and miserable than you can even imagine. And so friends, what Jesus is saying here is not you will go to hell if you lust, but he's saying Unless you learn to deal with sex, unless you learn to deal with your sexuality, unless you allow God to change the way you think about this awesome, amazing, mysterious, unique, and powerful thing, it is going to create all sorts of decay and destruction and misery in your life. Young people, hear me on this. Just want to talk specifically to you. Sometimes we think the world offers the good life. And specifically in this area. And we look at this area and we think the way of Jesus looks so, like so much less fun. (laughs) But in the end, over time, following Jesus, especially in this area, will save you from hurt and pain and struggle that you want no part of. It'll save you from Gehenna. It'll save you from the misery of finding yourself in a rotten, decaying, smelly, icky mess. It'll save you from a mountain of regret. Because here's the truth. Jesus always wants a better life for me than I sometimes even want for myself. He always wants a better life for me than I can sometimes even see or imagine by living under my own reasoning or thinking or power. You see, sometimes I'm tempted to think, I'm tempted to think, I know the way, I know what I want, I know what the good life is, it's satisfying this desire, nothing seems better. But Jesus says, 
Oh, child, don't just seek that instant pleasure. Let me save you from a world of hurt and pain. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The key phrase of this section, of this entire passage, I believe, is is this phrase, causes you to sin. Jesus is talking here about stuff that causes you to sin. The word for causes you to sin, it's one word, it's a Greek word, it's the word skandalizo. And it's certainly where we get our English word scandal. And Jesus is saying, if there's anything in this world that's going to throw your life into a scandal, that's going to get you in the newspaper or on the news, or in trouble with your spouse, or feeling like less of a person created in the image of God than you were created to be. Jesus says, avoid that. And this morning I want to do just a little uh, kind of word history. The, the technical word here is etymology. It's kind of like, how does a word get its meaning? How do we decide what a word means? And words are always associated with pictures and images and stories. Stories give words their meaning. And we have some examples of this in English, right? If I say a word, you will think of some pictures. If I say the word, touchdown. Instantly, you're thinking of a few things probably. A man in a helmet and some pads carrying an oblong-shaped ball into the end zone of a football field. You might have the image of a referee going like this, right? Touchdown. And if I said touchdown in the first century, they'd be like, what are you talking about, right? It's a very culturally specific word that's attached to a story and some images for us now. If I said the word wedding, You instantly think of a beautiful young girl in a white dress, an elaborate white dress. You might think of a guy in a tuxedo or a suit. You used to imagine them in a chapel or a church. Now they're off in some exotic location spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a moment that will move past real quickly. That's a whole other message. The point is that these words are attached to images and stories which inform their meaning. That's how the Bible is too. And so Jesus chose certain words for just this reason because they would conjure up certain pictures in in his listeners' minds. And when Matthew records this story, he uses this word, scandalizo, for a very specific reason. And here are the pictures that would have come to mind for first century Jews reading this account, reading this teaching when they heard the word scandalizo. The first picture would be of a long stick with bait on it that was meant to lure an animal into a trap. It was called the bait stick. And often the word used to describe the name given to a certain bait stick was the word scandalizo. Something that lured an animal into its own destruction. The second picture, common picture for first century Jews with this word scandalizo, would have been something put in someone's path to deliberately make them trip. And in the first century, bandits would do this. People walked and traveled everywhere on these roadways, right? Often kind of off in rural areas. And what bandits would do is they would stretch a cord, a thin cord across the path 
that people would not see. And so when they'd go by, they would trip on the cord or they would dig a a shallow trench and cover it with a thin layer of sticks and earth so that people would step on it, fall in and trip. And the idea was as soon as they would trip, then as soon as they were off balance and kind of lost their bearings, then the bandits would jump out and attack them in this moment of vulnerability. So with these word pictures in mind, Scandalizo came to mean something that trips a person up, something which lures them into their own ruin, something meant to send someone crashing into destruction. I remember when I was a young dad, um, our house in California had this area between the kitchen and the living room. It's just kind of this open area. We didn't really know what to do with it. We just kind of had a couch sitting there. And then there was this big open floor space. And then down this way was the hallway to the kid's bedroom. And it became the, like, the wrestling rink of our house, right? It's like I would camp out either on the floor or on the couch and then the kids would take turns trying to tackle me and attack me. And we came up with this game and I'm not sure how it came about but it was a super fun game. The kids would start in the hallway and they would run at me and I would be on the floor by the couch um, and I would take all these pillows because my wife, like most women, loves throw pillows. There's like pillows everywhere. So they became these like, and I would sling them at the kids' feet. And, you know, they're just little, right? Little helpless kids. And they would just like, it would just take them out and they'd just eat it, right? And then they'd get up again. I'd throw another one and then blankets in the way. And it was like, all I was trying to do was just trip them, trip them, trip them, trip them, trip them. They were just trying to get to me as fast as they could. And, and then they loved it. I mean, it was funny. They would just eat it over and over again. And yet they still had fun. And I just got to make it happen. It's like parenting at its best. So here <laughs> they are down the hall slinging pillows setting booby traps trying to make them trip and fall and then just laughing 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 Amy's like you know you're gonna hurt him you're gonna hurt him and that's fine you know that's how it goes so um the point is and I rarely use illustrations that make me the Satan figure but in this one it's kind of how it is that's what the enemy wants to do to you except it's not funny and at some point you'll stop laughing see here's what I think Jesus is driving at friends he's saying this, he's asking this, what are things in your life that could lead to destruction, that could trip you up, that could cause you to stumble, that could put you on a path towards ruin, that could eventually result in you experiencing tragic levels of sin in your life? Because here's the other truth, Adultery doesn't just happen. Sexual indiscretion and failure doesn't just spring out of nowhere. People don't just all of a sudden go from a life of purity into an adulterous affair without any precursory behavior. It's not how it works. That's not how the world works. It's not how we work. It's what we like to believe, though. That's what we tell ourselves. That's what we pretend all the time. How do you end up in that affair? The answer is, finish the sentence for me, I don't know, it just happened. How did you end up in that sexual relation? It just happened. How did you end up in that, how did you end up getting involved with that? It just happened. No, it didn't just happen. It started with a lack of focus on the oneness of marriage. It started with a lack of understanding God's intent for physical intimacy. It started with 
compromises and then you began to just let your mind wander and then you made some compromising decisions, some little ones, just some small ones. You started to take the bait. You started to get lured in by the bait stick. And, and then there was someone, there was someone else in your office or at the park or in the gym or down the street or online. And you looked and you looked again. And you kept on looking. And you said, it's no big deal. I'll fall down, but I'll get back up. And then you started spending too much time there. And then there were some instant compliments paid and perhaps some flirting back and forth and then on and on it went. Friends, it's not my goal to make you feel uncomfortable or guilty today. It is Jesus' goal, though, to help you very clearly understand how sin and Satan works in this world. Because this is what he does. He stands off to the side of your path, out of sight, and he holds out a bait stick, one custom designed for you. Because he knows you're pretty good. He knows something that you'd be tempted by, and he wiggles it until he has your attention. And then he lures you in to trip you up. And not in a fun, playful way, with the intention of destroying your life. You think it's innocent, you think it's fun, you think it's no big deal, and all of a sudden, things get out of control, and you're ruined. You become a person you don't recognize. But it seems so fun, it was just innocent flirting, everyone was doing it. Here's what the scriptures say, be self-controlled and alert, be very aware your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, to utterly and completely ruin and destroy. Make no mistake of what he wants to do in your life. Make no mistake about where that road and that path of sin wants to lead your life. So many people just want to rationalize it away. See, one thing Jesus wants us to think about as we dive into this text is not just lust or sex, but about the luring, destructive power of sin. You know, we're so light on sin. I mean, you know, we're just, even pastors, even, even me, like, we just, we don't like to talk about it. Sin. I mean, we sound so, like, you know, old school and conservative and, right, judgmental. You know what sin is? It's just a life that's not aligned with God's best for you. A life that is not leading you towards becoming the person that God longs for you to be. A life that's taking you away from a life of joy and peace and hope and fullness and satisfaction, becoming this person that you were created to be. That's what sin is. Something that wants to rob you of that. And so Jesus says, if there's a bait stick in your life, if there's something tempting you into an area that could possibly destroy God's plan for you, do whatever it takes to get rid of it. Extreme, evasive action sometimes needed. Gouge it out and throw it away. Cut it off and disregard it. Destroy it before it destroys you. That's the message. In fact, you'll notice here Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, and then he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, if your right eye is leading you towards scandal, if your right hand is leading you towards scandal in your life. Why does he do that? Why does he make this emphasis on the right? Because in Jesus' day, right, 
the right side of the body was thought to be the most noble and honorable side. People would say things like, I would like to sit at the right hand of the father. I'd like to sit at the right hand of the throne. Or that person is the king's right hand man. We use some of that language even still today, don't we? So what Jesus is doing, he's turning up the heat here. He's, he's ratcheting up like, like the sense of urgency. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, no, 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 no. Not just any hand. Your right hand, like be willing to even give up your right eye or your right hand, your best, most valued hand and eye. And if you're in the congregation today and you're left-handed, you don't like this. And I'll just say it's too bad. It's in the Bible. God likes right-handed people best. (laughs) And in this passage, Jesus uses this example of lust, right? He says, if there's a bait stick that's trying to in any way, trying to undermine God's sexual plan for your life, get rid of it. Paul echoes this sediment in 1 Corinthians, right? This is all throughout the scriptures, this warning. And by the way, I'll just say quickly, not in my notes, side notes, always fun. Um, Why does the Bible over and over and over again use such strong language in this area? Because God knows this is a really, really difficult area for us to deal with. Because God knows that every single one of us will deal with brokenness and struggle in this area. He speaks strongly to it because it's a strong temptation for you and me. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. So much damage, so much hurt, so much pain ahead for you if you compromise in this area. And God says, I just want to spare you of that. He doesn't want to be extra judgmental of it. He wants to be extra merciful And so here's what I'd like for you to do. Ask yourself this simple question this week. Is there anything in my life luring me towards sexual destruction? Is there anything in my life that lures me away from oneness in my marriage? Is there anything in my life that lures me away from oneness in my future marriage? Is there anything in my life that would lure someone else away from oneness in their future marriage? You see, it's not just about us. It's about the community. It's about others. Friends, if, you, if you're married, have a conversation with your spouse. Is there anything that lures us away from oneness in this marriage? This isn't just about like, are you doing anything bad on the computer? Well, that's a good question too. But it's way bigger than that. Way bigger than that for Jesus. How are we doing at fostering intimacy and vulnerability and oneness together? If so, you pray and ask God, and you pay any price to make it right. That may involve some hard stuff, because we'll talk about this in a minute, it's not easy. It may involve counseling, it may involve hard financial decisions, it may involve tough, tough conversations, it may involve confession, honesty, forgiveness, it may involve cutting off some relationships that just aren't good for you right now. But the oneness of your marriage is worth it. The oneness of your future marriage is worth it. The oneness of your soul is worth it. You see, maybe the bait stick for you is not that you're sexually tempted. Like maybe that's not a temptation for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just relating like, man, sexual temptation is just tough. It's all over. Maybe you're kind of thinking like, ah, 
I don't, it's not really a thing. It's not hard for me. I don't find myself like looking at other people and thinking about them. That's not my deal, right? Maybe the bait stick for you is not that you're sexually tempted, but sexually apathetic. Maybe this tool, this God-given tool of sexual oneness is not abused by you, but it's too often unused in your relationship. And here's the deal. Sex and sexuality is, is a very complicated and difficult thing. For some of you, this is actually the thing that you needed to hear today because there's freedom in this. Um, there's a movement from, I feel alone too. I'm not by myself, if you really hear what I'm about to say. For some of you, this is just the thing you needed to hear this morning because there's freedom. We have this idea in our world that sex is this very easy thing. It's just so easy. You ever watch those people on TV? I mean, the passion and the attraction and it all goes just wonderfully. Like, beautiful, amazing. It's just so easy, right? I mean, we're told that over and over and over and over again. And in the church, friends, we are far too often guilty of telling people the same message, or at least not combating that message, so often what we say in the church is just resist. Just resist doing certain things. Just don't do these things. And then, and then everything will be great. We tell our young people this all the time, right? Don't do this. Stay pure. Don't get involved in that. If you can just make it to your wedding night with some things intact, then from there, God will just take it. It'll be like bliss and passion for the rest of your life. That's what young people think, because that's what we tell them, or, that's, or we don't tell them something different, and so they've bought the narrative of our world, that it's just always so easy. Friends, I'll just be, I'll just be really bold. That is not true. It's not true for you, and it's not true for me. Remember in the garden? Remember this is like the, the opening story of the Bible. It's like the, the story upon which all the other stories of the scriptures are, are like sitting on top of. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're hanging out together. This is before sin enters the world. And they're what? They're naked and not ashamed. Friends, this is a statement that means something far more than, they, than just they had a really good body image. Right? We kind of think like naked and unashamed. Man, that must have been fun. Like they just felt so proud of their physical prowess. You know, Adam had a six pack and Eve had whatever Eve had. I won't mention it. You know? This statement, naked and unashamed, is about the ease with which they experienced vulnerability and intimacy and oneness with each other. It was so easy for them at first. It was like the movies times a million for them in the garden before sin, before the fall. But then sin and brokenness make its way into their world and into their lives. And the first thing they do is what? They cover up. They're no longer naked and unashamed. Now they're ashamed. They cover themselves. And again, this is about way more than they're just feeling modest or embarrassed. This is scripture telling us that now we live in a world where intimacy is hard. Connection and transparency and vulnerability, even for husbands and wives, will now, because of sin and brokenness, be a struggle. Adam and Eve, you ruined it for us, right? We ruin it for ourselves. 
Let, let me just tell all you unmarried people out there something, and you married people can listen in. Marriage is great. Uniting your life with another person is a wonderfully good thing, and it's also the worst thing you will ever do. It is so hard, it is so tough, and at times it will absolutely wreck you. God will use it for good. I wish somebody had told me this. I wish somebody had told me this when I was in my late teens and early 20s. You know? I wish somebody had said, hey, when it doesn't go just perfectly and it's difficult and it doesn't feel like the movies, there's nothing wrong with you. You're normal. You're just like all of us. You have to fight it because guess what? There's sin and brokenness. In this fallen, broken, sin-filled world where each and every one of us now carries around hurt and pain and insecurities that run so deep that we sometimes don't even know we have them, oneness and intimacy can take a lot of work and intentionality. You're not alone. You're not weird. It's the same for everyone. But work at it. Do whatever you need to do to avoid sexual devastation in your life and pursue the oneness of your marriage. Do whatever it takes. And I'll, I'll close today with a couple of very practical things on how we can respond because Jesus is practical here as well. I love Jesus. He's, he's just like, I could spend four days on this passage, just so, many, so much stuff. Um, but we're gonna wrap it up in just a minute. Jesus says, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. In a sense, he's being hyperbolic, right? Just let's be clear. No bodily mutilation. Jesus is not saying to actually do that. We believe the Bible, but we believe the Bible says what it wants to say, and Jesus is being hyperbolic here. He's trying to make a point. But he's also being practical, because the eye and the hand are two different things, right? First of all, the eye is how you view things. And Jesus is saying, be very careful. Here's a practical tool for you in this area. Here's a way that you can avoid being tripped up or falling into destruction. Be very careful. Be aware of what you are seeing. Be aware of what you are watching and looking at. Remember how Jesus begins this passage? I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, the problem starts with how you use your eyes, what you allow to enter your brain. That word looks, anyone who looks, in Greek, it means to look and keep on looking, to look again, to dwell, to take a second look, to let your mind wander. And what Jesus is saying is, don't even be sexually involved in your brain with someone besides your spouse. Ooh. Because there's power. In those images, there's power in what you let kind of float through your eyes. There's power in what you let simmer and rattle around in between your ears. The Bible talks about taking every thought captive, about making sure that we don't allow ideas and thoughts and narratives to marinate in our brains that are not in line with how God wants us to think. So Jesus says, be careful with your eyes. He also says, be careful with your hands. This means you have to be concerned also with your behavior. Like with your physical world. Like think about what you're seeing, think about what you're thinking, but also think about what you're doing, think about what you're engaging. This word lustfully, it's very interesting because it does not mean sexual desire. Jesus uses a neutral word, word here. This, is not, this word is not really even about sex. Um, it's epithemeo. 
It means to attempt to use something or someone to satisfy your soul in a way that it's not intended to. It's like using something else. I mean, so you can lust after lots of stuff, right? I lust after brownies sometimes, right? In this passage, Jesus is saying, don't lust after another person. In other words, don't use them, don't use their sexuality to satisfy a need in your soul. Don't be the user of someone else just to meet a momentary need in your, in your mind or your heart or other places. He's saying, be careful you know, what you do. Be careful where you are. You have to be concerned about where you are and what you're doing. You need to avoid places of temptation. This means like your physical surroundings matter. This means creating real tangible boundaries for yourself. This means like setting up safeguards to prevent you from getting to a place where all of a sudden there's a bait stick in front of you and you just can't resist it. And, and again, I'll just say this as we close. All these practical boundaries are really good. We all need boundaries to help ourselves. But I also want us to be careful because Jesus is not just calling us to increase, increase our efforts of behavior management. He's not saying like the standard used to be this and now the standard is this. You used to have to try this hard and now you have to try this hard. This is not the message of Christ. There's some practical things we can do. There's some effort we can make and yet that is not at the very center of his teaching. In fact, one of the applications of this passage, um, and you've seen this in churches throughout the centuries, is that we isolate or separate ourselves from the opposite sex. Sometimes people will take this passage, they'll get really serious about it, and they just start to isolate themselves from the opposite sex. In fact, in the Middle Ages, there were monks who would live in isolation, and they would keep track in their journals of how many years it had been since they looked at a woman's face. I haven't looked at a woman's face in five years. Good job. Way to go. That's awesome. Like, being really careful about what's coming through my eyeballs... Their idea was, as long as I don't look, I'll be righteous. As long as I just avoid sin, I'll be righteous. Their idea was, if I just raise the rule bar and try really, really hard, then I'll end up living the life that God wants me to live. But the problem with that, of course, is that Jesus, more than anyone in his world, didn't avoid women. (laughs) Right? The problem with that way of thinking is to say, man, I should really avoid women, but Jesus didn't avoid women. In fact, Jesus embraced women, and he loved women, and he befriended women, and he hung out with women, even alone sometimes at a well in the middle of the desert. He engaged them and had conversations with them, and he treated them like whole people. And Jesus is saying, you know, some even believe with humor here. Some believe that if you read this passage in a different way, I love this interpretation, that Jesus is being kind of cheeky with the, with the, with the uh, religious leaders. He's saying, if you, know, if you want to attempt righteousness, if your kind of whole goal is just sin avoidance just by not looking, um, then why not go all the way? Like, if you really want to be righteous, then just pluck your eyes out. Like, if that's your plan, if that's your strategy, then just go full tilt into it and just pull that thing right out of your skull. No more problem or sin anymore. Now I'll never see a woman's face, right? Saved from temptation. But of course what Jesus is saying here is, but your eyes are not the problem. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. But that won't work because your eye's not the problem, nor is your hand. Your problem is your heart. 
Your problem is your innermost being, your thoughts and desires and intentions. You see, God doesn't want to destroy your ability to see and touch. He doesn't want to thwart your sexuality. He wants to redeem it. Jesus says true freedom, real life, and kingdom living are when you are transformed in the way you think about sexuality. Friends, so many of us are caught in this pattern. We're caught in this religious, pharisaical, rules and law-driven pattern where we feel guilt and shame for what we've done or what we're doing. Then we buckle down and try real hard, and then we feel good and prideful, like we're really on top of it until we're not again, and then there's guilt and shame, and then there's pride and like affirmation, and we're just back and forth between these things. And in the middle of that, it's just all me. It's just me. It's just me trying hard. It's just me being religious. And Jesus says, no. We sing that song at the beginning of of church. I was just listening to James sing it. I will build, I will build my life on what? On the rules of God that I will follow. I will build my life on love, God's love. And so here's the the thing that changes it all, right? What's lust? I'm going to use you to get something from me. My soul is empty and yearning and longing. There's an emptiness in me that I can't fill, so I'm going to use you to try to fill it. That's lust. That's lust of people. That's lust of sex and sexuality. That's lust of images on the internet, that's lust of the ice cream in your freezer at home, that's the insatiable lust of Netflix shows, which we're like in the habit of binge watching now because we're so empty in this world. So Jesus says, here's the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the solution, here's the real solution. What if you weren't empty? What if you were filled? What if you were filled with something that would satisfy what if you didn't have to use that person to get something because you are already filled up with God? That's the good news. The good news is God has poured out his love into our hearts, right? That we are completely filled. The good news is you don't have to look to the things of this world to, to fill you up anymore. The, the ultimate and sustaining filling of your soul is now available to you in Jesus Christ. That's why we come to these tables every week to be reminded of that. Just remember that we're filled up, to remember how loved we are, to remember how valuable we are, to remember how worthy we are, to remember how attractive we are to God. I don't need some woman to tell me I'm attractive. The God of heaven and earth says I'm attractive. That's available to you. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the only thing that will ever satisfy. The only thing that will ever satisfy. Now, Jesus isn't saying stop trying. But he's saying, you can't do this on human effort. You can only do it through the power of the gospel. And so here's the deal, friends. When you come up here today to these tables, there's two things available to you. There's two things. And then they'll speak right into this area of sexual brokenness in your life. First, pardon. There's two P, I'm gonna give you two P words at the end. There's pardon. All the things you've done all the images that you've let simmer in your mind, all the moments where you were engaged sexually in ways that you're ashamed of. God says, as far as the east is from the west, 
I don't even remember it. You're cleansed white as snow. That's the power of the death of Jesus to forgive you of your sin. But then there's not just pardon. Not just, oh, I can get forgiven and I can go back out and do my thing this week and come back and get forgiven again. There's power. There's the power you need to be an overcomer. There's the power that you need to live this life that God wants you to live. There's this power to not be locked and trapped in this vicious cycle of sexual indiscretion and lust that just beats on your identity and prevents you from being who God wants you to be. There's power to live a new way. See, this this table represents, as you take the bread and you drink the cup, it's like a physical reminder that God wants to fill you completely full. So here's my question for you as we come to the table today. What's God saying to you today? What does he want you to do with this area of your life? Just ask him that question this morning as you come. God, anything you want me to do? Any sin that I need to confess to a trusted friend? Any conversations I need to have with my spouse? Any boundaries I need to put up? Do I need to, Lord, just spend more time at your feet, sitting at your feet, reading your word to be reminded of who I am, who who I truly am, to let you fill me so that I'm not so tempted to look for a filling in other places? What does God need to tell you this morning? How does he want you to think again about this wonderful, amazing area of our lives called sexuality? Spend some time with the Lord, and when you're ready, the tables will be open. You can receive the, the bread and the cup on your own. I'll pray, and then, and then come to the table. Father, today, forgive me for being long-winded, and just ask that you would use this message to move people towards you, that no one would walk out of here with more guilt or shame or, or the weight trying to do that on their own, but they would find freedom in you, that they would feel your love for them, that they would feel your affirmation, and that it would change them and touch them and move them. I pray that for all of us, Lord, because we're all sexually broken people who need you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.